Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we have gotten up to chapter 18, where the mysterious uh, character of Jethro enters our narrative again in a fairly big way. So today is really going to be mostly about Jethro, I think, isn't it, Daniel? Jethro, the uh, father-in-law of Moses. It's always nice when we get to sit here and talk about in-laws, isn't it? Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, quite a good father-in-law as far, far as father-in-laws go, I think. Yeah, 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 this is true. Yep. This is true. Okay, so uh, let's let's hop right in, and I think we'll be hitting the Midrash pretty hard pretty quick um, because it will become extremely pertinent right away. So um, why don't I read verse one and then we'll pause and look at our first midrash. How would that be? I, that sounds good. Though the other th- only thing I would throw in there is uh, when it comes to in-laws, this is one of the wonderful differences between Hebrew and Yiddish where they have the same word, but they really mean different things. Uh, so in, in Hebrew, the word for in-laws is machatonim. Uh, uh, just means in-laws. But when you say the same word in Yiddish, it means in-laws not in a nice way. Interesting. So Yiddish culture has more trouble with in-laws than other yeah, parts of the Jewish world. <laughs> maybe that's the case, or maybe just more honesty there. You know, we actually get this all over with uh, uh, Yiddish chutzpah, which can mean sort of uh, having nerve in a positive way, too. You put it in uh, Yiddish. Actually, this is true in modern Hebrew, too. And it's almost entirely a negative word. Ugh, what really? nerve that person has. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay. All right. But I think Jethro has the non-Yiddish sense of being an in-law, right? I mean, I well, we can talk about this as we go forward, but I don't think Moses is particularly frustrated with him or sees him as problematic. No, 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 no. It doesn't seem to be. Doesn't yeah. seem to be, or at least that's not the story that we get in the Torah here. Right, right. Maybe there's a backstory somewhere. We don't, we don't know what Moses complains to Zipporah about back in their tent. <laughs> exactly. We don't complain about our in-laws on uh, Lost in the Wilderness. That's, that's policy or in Exodus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's part of our extensive list of policy for this podcast. Yeah, yeah we, we do that only when we're uh, done recording. Yeah, that's, we're very we're very rule-bound. I don't know if our listeners have figured this out yet, but, you know, for Exodus, that makes sense. So Intense about our structure, never getting off on tangents. That's right, really, that's, right. That's our here. Okay, uh, verse one. As Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay, I always sort of like this opening, right? Because it reminds us that in the ancient world, when you're living in different places, it takes time for the news to spread. And what news is, is somewhere between fact and rumor. Uh not only in the ancient world. Here at, in our world, it takes no time, but news is still somewhere between fact and rumor. <laughs> Amen. Um, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what, do we assume, what is it that he's hearing, right? He's heard all right. that God had done for Moses and Israel. So he's hearing, I guess, about the Red Sea. Um, the Midrash says about Amalek. Uh, Not about the plagues, though, which seems a little odd. The, one would think that people would hear, oh, by the way, all these calamities are befalling the Egyptians, and it's because they won't let these weird slaves they have go, and this strange guy with a cool staff keeps uh, inflicting things on them. But that 
that's that doesn't make it into the midrash. That does not make it into the midrash, but I like your point. Yeah, that that does seem like something that would stand out. Yeah, uh, but but maybe it's because do do the Red Sea and Amalek actually loom larger in Judaism than the plagues themselves? Yes. Interesting. I hadn't ever thought of it that way. Yeah. The plagues are really important in terms of the story that we tell uh, about the Exodus, particularly at Passover. Uh, But yeah, they're not a part of the broader Jewish imagination. And certainly they aren't nearly as important in what I think of as sort of the Jewish ethical code that emerges from the Exodus story. Um, Whereas the Red Sea and the, uh, in particular, the battle against Amalek become pretty central. The Red Sea is part of the ethical code. I, I was thinking it had to do with faith, but um, how is it part of the ethical code? So, you know, first is the the Red Sea is a moment of birth uh, and really becomes understood as a birth canal of sorts for the Jewish people. That once you're on the other side of that sea, there is something new that has happened. It is the formation of this people. I, I guess there are sort of twin moments of birth. Uh, there's the Red Sea, uh, and then there is the covenantal moment of Sinai also, uh, sort of the, the birth and the circumcision, if you will, the bris milah, um, uh, one being sort of natural that happens and the other being, uh, um, a mark of covenant. Um, but we also get all sorts of meditations on the significance of the Red Sea. I think we talked about the Midrash of the angels, uh, uh, trying to celebrate as the Egyptians are drowning in the Red Sea uh, and how God rebukes them saying, how dare you celebrate while my creation is drowning. Mm-hmm. And that becomes really a central understanding for Jews of how we uh, uh, balance our own stories of uh, thriving and survival with the suffering that happens to others around us at times. Okay. So there is the ethical component. There's the ethical component. How do we um, relate to the world that is not us? And it's the same question for Amalek, too. So, Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, right. so these are the things that Jethro has heard. Not, not that all these miracles happen in Egypt, but this new people is being birthed, and they are uh, asking or involved in these very complicated ethical questions. So uh, Jethro may be responding to some ethical news, but we also have a midrash from 12th century Spain that implies he's responding to something else as well. Yeah, so we're going to look at uh, Nachmanides, uh, not to be confused with uh, Maimonides or uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman. Uh, you know, always always good to get ourselves confused here for a moment. Right. Um, so Nachmanides writing in 12th century Spain, but what makes him sort of unique is he's writing in Christian Spain. Uh, most of the sort of great Jewish thinkers that come out of the Spanish experience uh, come from the Muslim world or actually tend to be pretty dismissive of the Christian world. Uh, Nachmanides, on the other hand, is really very different. He's in dialogue pretty clearly, uh, as is his community with Christian thinking. And I think one of the ways that this is impacted is a real emphasis on looking at uh, spirituality Hmm. rather than politics. Now, the other piece too is his community is experiencing massive upheaval. Uh, uh, We're seeing the uh, 
reemergence of Catholicism in Spain, uh, brought literally by the sword. Uh, and at the same time, the moderate Islam, which had been in southern Spain, is disappearing as a more radical form of Islam uh, comes in from North Africa. So this sort of golden moment, this golden age is collapsing in on them. And I think part of that is this, uh, part of the result of that is this turn towards the spiritual. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the real interesting thing for me here is Nachmanides, uh, he takes Jethro, the quintessential non-Jew in the Torah, in this story of Exodus. And he says that Ethro is, or Jethro is the one that teaches Moses the lesson that Moses gets so lost and so focused on the political idea of the Red Sea uh, and the political idea of Amalek, right? The, the real world version that he's missing the fact that these are actually spiritual understandings that are happening within us, that there is an Egypt that all of us are trapped in that we need to uh, make our way through and that there is an inclination within each of us to target the vulnerable that must be fought. Right. Uh, so these become the great lessons of Jethro to Moses. Well, I, I of course love that because that's my preferred reading of the text. Um, but, uh, I don't want to, it to be entirely colored by my precious going forward. So, so, uh, pull me back if I go too far, Daniel. Okay. I look to you. Okay. The, the rope is tied. I'm ready, okay. ready to do so. Okay. Very good. All right. So, but let's keep two things in mind as we go forward. One is that this might be political, ethical, and two, that it might be spiritual. So moving on to verse two. Moses's father-in-law took Zipporah, Moses's wife, after her being sent away, and her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, for he said, A sojourner I have been in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, for the god of my fathers was my aid and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. So uh, we covered this in Bible study at St. John's uh, a week or two ago, and one of the questions was, why were Zipporah and Moses' two sons not with him all along? Yeah, it's a good question, right? I mean, I, I guess in my head, it's always been the idea that it wasn't safe for them back in Egypt. Uh-huh. Right? They're, they're being protected. Uh, Moses is doing something pretty dangerous here, right? He's going back to the place where he killed someone. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen to his family. And the protections that he always had as a prince of Egypt certainly are gone now. Uh, th were there other thoughts that emerged? Well, there seems to be uh, a midrash here from uh, Makilta, Rashi. Well done. Yeah. Uh, when God said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt, Moses took his wife and sons. When Aaron later met with him at the mountain of God, he said to him, who are these? Said Moses, this is my wife, whom I married in Midian, and these are my children. Where are you taking them? Asked Aaron. To Egypt, said Moses. Said Aaron to Moses, we are grieving over the ones already in Egypt, and you propose to add to their number? So Moses said to Zipporah, return to your father's house. And she took her two sons and went away. So basically, Zipporah and the boys were not there in Egypt throughout any of the plagues or any of the, the miracle working or anything else. No, they totally miss it. Um, though I'll tell you what just stood out to me here is, you know, if we take this midrash, one of the themes of this chapter is that Moses really needs other people's help. He just doesn't have a lot of... Um, he doesn't have like a lot of uh, um, 
practical sense, right? He's going to bring his kids into a war zone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he thinks that he can be the entire uh, uh, bureaucracy of the government for this people of two million. Right. <laughs> well, he's he's been trying to be so far. But, yes, he does not seem to be a great, like, organizational man, you know. No, no. I mean, it's interesting. You almost have a model here of Jethro as community organizer. Uh-huh. He's the one who's going to put in place the structures that are needed. Yeah. Yeah, and invest in the other leadership. Yeah, uh, which is which is pretty cool. So, uh, is that so? Does that apply to like the ethical political dimension or to the spiritual dimension or to both somehow? Oh, I don't know. Think think through that with me. What would that look like in terms of the spiritual dimension here? Well, I think a big part of spirituality is learning to let go of control, um, mostly, most powerfully to to acknowledge that God is in control. We are not, but one way you do that is through practice with other people. So Moses is being called to let go of control of his position of prominence and power or his sole ownership of that position of power and prominence. So perhaps Hmm. that's part of it. There's a contraction that has to happen, right? Moses has to make space for others. Right. Right. And, uh, although we don't often think of that maybe as like a spiritual thing. I think, I think it just certainly is right. That kind of learning to agree that you can be wrong or that you do not, you are not the sole possessor of the answer for your Hmm. community. Hmm. You know, it's also a model of the sort of classic mystic spiritual understanding of God within Judaism, which is that in order for creation to happen, it first took a moment of simsum, a moment of contraction for God. That God had to ah. create a space that was not God in order for there to be uh, creation. What's the word for that? Simsum. Simsum, like a sadi. It's the ts sound, like at the end of any English word that ends with ts. Okay. Like he hits the ball. That that's just at the beginning of a word. Okay, and that means God's—the contraction of God at the beginning of creation. The contraction of God—actually, the, the story goes on. It's, I love this story that uh, God decides to create and so has to create a place that is not God. So it contracts God's self, and the question is, what happens to the overflow? What happens to the part of God that is no longer filling that space? And uh, the Jewish mystical answer is that God creates these vessels that contain the holiness, but the vessels aren't strong enough to contain God's uh, essence. And so they crack and splinter and uh, spread throughout the universe. And this is where the brokenness of the universe comes from. And this ultimately is why people are created, that humans are created to find these broken shards uh, and to lift them up and redeem the divine sparks within them. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, so divinity cannot fit into the space of creation. The overflow breaks apart and is spread throughout the creation. And then we are and meant the, to find it. And it's why people are created. Exactly. It is our role. It is our role. We become God's subcontractors here. That, wow, that's a, I'm, I've never heard anything like that before. That is really powerful. Uh, okay. Well, see, we are just milking this Jethro story for as much as we can possibly get. 
I'm really proud of us for, I don't think we've gone on a single tangent yet today. No, no, we're really sticking to it, which is good because it's one of our rules. Um, okay, so going on, do you, uh, do you want to read the next few verses? Sure. The, the last thing to say about those previous verses, the two sons of Moses, is if it wasn't clear from the text itself, when we talk about Gershom, uh, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and Eliezer, meaning God was the God of my father, was my help. That's what their names actually mean. If you take them apart in Hebrew, that's the etymology of right. their names. Right. Um, okay, verse 6. Uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. I like that we get two mentions of the fact that he's his father-in-law in these verses, right? Just a little bit of a reminder. Well, um, I also like the fact that it's her two sons and not his two sons. <laughs> yes. Well, that's well, they, <laughs> yeah. Well, Moses has, you know, Jethro may not be pleased with Moses' behavior, and we all know how that works then. Yeah, he's throwing a little shade. Yep, throwing a little shade. Uh Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. By the way, it's not clear in the Hebrew who's bowing and who's kissing. Uh-huh. Uh, each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything that Adonai had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the way and how Adonai had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the kindness that Adonai had shown Israel when God delivered them from the Egyptians. Blessed be Adonai, Jethro said, who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Uh, so a midrash here, one of my really favorite midrashim. You know, one of the problems for the rabbinic tradition is that Jethro becomes sort of an image of someone who's wiser than Moses, right? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh but there's this issue because Jethro is an idolater. Yep. Uh, so how do we reconcile uh, that an idolater, right? The, in fact, the, one of the Midrashim says that he is the head idolater of the entire world. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. This is an elected position very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of support that Jethro has. Uh-huh. Um, and so actually did, this, I think, is is one of the craziest midrashim I know. It says that when Moses asked for Tzipora's hand in marriage, uh, Jethro made a condition. He said, your first son must be allowed to worship idolatry. Uh, which is crazy because according to the rest of the rabbinic tradition, by this point, Jethro has already converted. Ah, Okay. Right. So if he has already converted and he's joined uh, the Jewish people, or at least is worshiping the Jewish God, uh, why the heck would he ask that his grandson be an idolater? Right. Uh, And one of the answers that's given here, and I love this, is that it's pedagogical. Uh, Jethro has gone through the experience of discovering the truth himself, and he's learned how much more powerful it is to discover something than it is just to be told that something is true. Uh-huh. Um, right. So he wants Gershom to have the experience of discovering the truth by uh, going and trying out anything he wants to try out. So basically, yes. uh, Gershom is on a kind of theological or spiritual rumspringa. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm having flashbacks to that uh, bowling movie. Uh, well, I haven't actually seen that, but yeah, uh, I should. Kingpin, right? Kingpin. Yes. Kingpin, yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, what's interesting to me about this is uh, this is one of the questions about uh, Christian baptism, and in some ways, Christian confirmation. I think is probably a question for any religion that has marked rites of passage and belonging. I wonder, actually, is is this a question for um, for Jews? I mean, are there people who say it's okay if you don't have your um, uh, bar mitzvah? Now, when you're not ready, wait until you're ready, or is that or is that just unheard of? No, I think it's more and more uh, a part of American Judaism uh, because you know, really, for for the first time in history, uh, being Jewish is a choice in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and that's never been true of Jewish history before. It's always been something that is forced on you from the outside. Uh, and that's not true anymore. And so we're seeing a radical change in the understanding of what it means to be a Jew. Uh, that to be a Jew is about choice today rather than about an identity that is forced on you, uh, by an oppressor. Right. Right. So people have choice now where they never had choice before. And, um, are many people choosing to be Jews or is this a decline? So, you know, we're, we're seeing a huge uh, rate of assimilation in the American Jewish world. Uh, to give you a sense, uh, whether you consider Jews an ethnic group or a religious group, we have the highest rate of intermarriage in the United States. Uh, in uh, the non-Orthodox world in the last half decade, 70% of all Jewish weddings have been interfaith weddings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every year in the United States, there are 45,000 fewer people who identify as Jews than there were the year before. Wow. Okay. So there's, so there is a a diminishment in that in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of sort of, um, hair pulling in the Jewish institutional world about this though. I tend to, um, I tend to not get too worked up. You know, that you hear a lot of language from people talking about how this is, I mean, this is really awful finishing Hitler's work. Oh my God. Uh, and I think it's totally missing that this is actually the opposite experience for Jews, which is that 70 years ago, they were literally trying, they were literally murdering us for being Jews uh-huh. uh, in Europe. And today, what the Jewish world is pulling its hair about, hair out about in the United States is that we have so been embraced and accepted into mainstream American white culture uh, in society that Jewish identity has become optional uh, in something that people can take on and off like a coat. Right. Uh, well, and this is kind of the, I, I believe that Christians in their own odd way are having the same argument. So there are, you know, there are people who really want America to remain a Christian nation, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are people who are just kind of pure Christian separatists who, you know, don't want their children having anything to do with secular society as a whole. Um, and then there are lots of Christians who are just kind of relaxed about it all, you know, who, and I include myself in that group, you know, who say, yeah, things are changing. Our institutions are changing. 
uh, we could talk about it as decline or, you know, maybe we just want to talk about it as change, but, uh, there's no reason to be afraid of that change. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that I've articulated this to myself, uh, is sort of a, um, mind game of would I rather that my children grow up to be ultra Orthodox uh-huh. or, or would I rather that my children grow up with no Jewish identity, but a strong sense of the values that I want them to have? Yeah. Um, and I think more and more I come down on the piece of it's the values that are important. Uh, and the identity is there to serve the values, not the other way around. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I think the community is also important. And, you know, so this is kind of where my question comes from. You know, like I was baptized as an infant, as was my daughter. Uh, I was confirmed when I was 12, like a very gawky photos of me in a white confirmation robe. Um, uh, but this time, you know, when, when my daughter be- became a pre-adolescent, we said to her, you know, pick it, right? Like you couldn't pick your baptism. We decided that for you. And we did so because we wanted to have a community stand up and say that they would take care of you and be supportive of you, of you in your life. Um, but confirmation has become to some degree, uh, really the moment when a person chooses their own faith. Um, and, and at the moment, you know, she was not ready to pick it, but she is now a year, two years later. Um, whereas I had it kind of forced upon me and then within the next few years declared myself to be an atheist. Right. (laughs) So, so I think this challenge plays out in all of our lives. Do we, you know, do we do the thing that Jethro does and say, you've got to explore, you've got to wander. Um, but you need also to know that there's a community that will support you as soon as you're ready to come back and will Hmm. greet you with open arms. Um, Or do we say, no, what's important is that you belong to the community and the community holds these beliefs. So we expect you to hold these beliefs. Um, And I don't know, you know, I, I mean, I know where I fall down, you know, fall on that question. I, I think exploring and wandering is good. And in my own experience does not actually make people less faithful. It actually makes them more faithful. Hmm. Hmm. Um, But I, you know, if there was somebody here who could, who could argue the other side, I'm sure they would have convincing arguments. I, you know, it's one of the things I've really, to go meta on this for a moment, I've really enjoyed about my time, uh, with the Episcopal diocese is this sense that, uh, particularly American conservative and reformed Jews, those are the movements, not the political ideologies, by the way, uh, uh, that there's a really, there's a real simpatico kind of, uh, thing with the Episcopal church in the United States. Okay. So I'll continue on, uh, from verse 11 and we can maybe circle back to this question of Gershom and his explorations if we need to. Uh, this is Jethro speaking. He says, uh, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the thing that they schemed against them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel with him to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You have uh, Daniel, what's, 
What's your translation? That's a weird translation. Yeah, I was just looking at that too. Uh, my translation says to partake of the meal, but yours is better. Uh, to eat bread. Um, okay, but what about verse 11? Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for the thing that they schemed against them. What does yours say? I don't quite get that. Uh, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. Ah, okay. Um, hmm. I, you know, I was actually, I was thinking about the, the next verse, this idea of the burnt offering, the sacrifices and the meal. You know, this is one of those things that sort of rocked my world. I always thought of sacrifices as being these animals that are burnt up and offered to God. Mm -hmm. uh, but really the much better way of understanding sacrifice is barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't being burnt up to God. The the smell goes up to God. The meat goes back to you. Yeah, somebody actually mentioned that at Bible study last night. They're like, you know, what about if you take an animal and you sacrifice it? Then a lot of people are going to go hungry. And I said, no, no, they they eat the animal. <laughs> Don't worry about that part. <laughs> They're just eating the animal with God. The point of sacrifice is to invite God to be part of the meal. Yeah, it's also a reminder about what a weird world we live in today in terms of the amount of meat that the typical American consumes, uh, uh -huh. which is that it used to be in the ancient world that meat was so valuable that whenever you would slaughter an animal, you would do it as a special sacrifice. Spoken like a true vegetarian. Spoken like a true vegetarian. It's true. You can you <laughs> hear the screams of the broccoli stalks in my refrigerator. <laughs> So verse 13, and it happened on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood over Moses from the morning till the evening. And Moses's father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. And he said, what's the thing that you're doing for the people? Why are you sitting alone while all the people are poised over you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, for the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have some matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his fellow, and I make known God's statutes and his teachings. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and this people that is with you. For the thing is too heavy for you. You will not be able to do it alone. All right, I I just love this. I I, I love the, the thing you are doing is not good. You know, he's just laying it down. Uh, yeah, there, there's no pulling of the punches here. Um, yeah, actually, there's a there's a tradition in Judaism that says that this chapter didn't originally exist in God's plan for the Torah. Okay, uh, it comes from there's a spelling variation. There's two different spellings of Jethro's name within the Torah. Uh, in some versions, there's an extra letter that's added, a, a silent letter. Uh, and the rabbis say that this letter is added because there was this whole chapter that was added to the Torah on account of Jethro. That this lesson was so significant that even though it wasn't in the original plan, uh, Jethro's contribution must be added so that it can be preserved for future generations. Huh. So Jethro is actually editing the text. Yes, at some level, Jethro, the non-Jewish priest of Midian, is the redactor of this text. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, okay. All right, so he's, he's laying it out to Moses and saying, what are you doing? And I think, it might, I think we might join him in that. Yes. Because we're dealing with several million people here. 
and a single person trying to <laughs> try to decide all the cases. No wonder it takes him forty years to wander through the wilderness. Yes. They have to stop every day, you know, for like a week long judicial session for everybody to get all their crabbiness out with each other. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, now heed my voice, Jethro says in verse 19. I shall give you counsel, and may God be with you. For be for you for the people over against God, and it shall be you who will bring the matters to God, and you shall warn them concerning the statutes and the teachings, and you shall make known to them the way in which they must go and the deed which they must do. As for you, you shall search out from all the people able, God-fearing men, truthful men, haters of bribes, and you shall put them over chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, chiefs of fifties, and chiefs of tens, and they shall judge the people at all times, and so every great matter they shall bring to you, and every small matter they themselves shall judge, and it will lighten from upon you, and they will bear it with you. Um, so... As a as a Christian priest reading this, I I see it as like a kind of ordination of these officials hmm. or something. Um, but I don't I, I doubt it thought of that way in Judaism, right? Like so so this brings me to a question I've long been wanting to ask you, which is where where does a rabbi's authority stem from in Judaism? So rabbi, you know, we use the phrase ordination, but it's not ordination. Uh, in the same sense, I think that uh, uh, Christians often mean it. Uh, a rabbi is simply an academic degree. Um, uh-huh. uh, sort of like PhD. Actually, what it's most similar to is judge. Uh, technically, what it means to be a rabbi is someone who has been trained and authority has been vested in that person uh, to make Jewish legal rulings. So basically, this is it then. This passage. Yeah, I guess it is, huh? I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought of it that way. Yeah, um, I, you know, I always think of it. This becomes one of the seven commandments that Judaism says are incumbent upon the whole world and not just upon Jews. Uh, as a general rule, the six hundred thirteen commandments that Judaism says there are uh, only are binding to Jews. Okay, uh, but there's seven commandments. One of which is the obligation to create true courts of justice. Huh. What are the other six? Oh, let's see if I can get these. Yeah. Um, the other unusual one is uh, that there has to be kindness to animals. You you can't uh, tear a limb off of a living animal. That you have to, if you're going to eat meat, you have to kill the animal properly. Uh, okay. And the other five after that are uh, straight out of the Ten Commandments. They're uh, prohibitions against uh, sexual immorality, against murder, uh, against idolatry. Um, uh, really? Idolatry? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. No, well, idolatry. Is... Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, go. you go. I was going to say idolatry here is not meant necessarily in the... Uh, sort of classic sense of do you literally have idols, but instead uh, do you hold up human beings as being God? Okay. Okay. So that's because I was going to say if being monotheistic and not having idols and worshiping the one God uh, is supposed to apply to everybody, doesn't that really in a certain way make, make us all Jews? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know? So then to say that there are seven commandments that apply to non-Jews and have like the big one be one of them. Um, I don't know. I, I, from our, from our current situation in time and space here in the 21st century, that one seems, uh, odd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, though if we think of idolatry as making God in our own image, uh, it's certainly as significant of a, a commandment today as it ever was. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Okay, so setting up good law courts so, uh, is, is just essential for all humanity to get by, is what, is what they're saying. Yeah, yeah and, and Jethro. Okay, and as a rabbi, your authority in some way draws from that. You interpret the law to the community. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. But for instance, there are no rights uh, that a rabbi is required for. You don't need a rabbi for a wedding. You don't need a rabbi for a baby naming or a bris. You don't need a rabbi um, for any of these things. Uh, the, the, okay. A rabbi is simply the knowledgeable person who knows how to do those things, not someone who is required. And a rabbi can be anyone. Um, so, yeah, uh, so you don't have to be of any particular tribe or anything like that. Nope. Don't need to be a Levite. Nope. You, okay. you can be born a Jew. You can be a Jew by choice. Uh, for most of the Jewish world now, you can be a man. You can be a woman. Uh, you can be trans. You can be um, whatever. It's a, it's a statement of learning, not of anything else. Okay. And there is no rabbinic succession. Like you wouldn't say, I'm a rabbi in the lineage of so-and-so. So the only place that that is true is in what we call the Hasidic community, uh, which are basically mm-hmm. the Jews who come out. It, it's the ultra-Orthodox Jews whose families come out of the area where the Russian Orthodox Church held sway. Um, okay. and you can actually see the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church in that sense of an intermediary uh, with the rabbi. Yeah, okay, because I was going to say, so for Episcopalians, um, we consider ourselves to be in what's called apostolic succession, which means that each priest can trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles. Oh, interesting. Uh, each priest and deacon, I should probably say, too, because everybody is ordained by a bishop, and that bishop is part of that lineage. Uh, so we are all in the apostolic succession. And this is one thing that keeps us from merging with, say, the Methodists. Um, because John Wesley, when he made his first Methodist ministers, was not a bishop and therefore was not in the apostolic. I mean, he, he himself was an Anglican priest, so he himself was in the apostolic succession. But he had no authority to make other priests or other ministers. That is so um, cool. Uh, sure. <laughs> Um, that's awesome. I love that. So rabbis used to be like that. The chain was broken at some point about a thousand years ago. Yeah. That was the end. Okay. No. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we were on verse 23. Do you want to take it from there? Uh, If you do this and God so commands you to do this, you will be able to bear up and all these people too will go home unwearied. Uh, Right. I, I love this. It's Jethro is just being practical here. Um, Moses heeded his father-in-law and did just as he had said. Moses chose capable men out of all of Israel and appointed them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. The difficult matters they would bring to Moses and all the minor matters they would decide themselves. 
Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way to his own land. Okay, so Jethro appears just for this episode to do this important thing. Um, and, it, you know, it strikes me so much else about creating the community of the Hebrews has been about um, shared experience and law. Uh, but here we, we get a structure. We get a societal structure that is not based on tribes um, put in place. So an administrative structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might be a good question for us to think how much of our sense of ourselves as a community relies on administrative structure. Interesting. Yeah. How much of our identity is tied up in bureaucracy? Yep. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, I would love to say as little as possible. Um, simply because that's the part that I'm not interested in. Uh, and yet I know that like people who go, for instance, to our general convention every three years are doing good and holy work, right? Because they are taking all the disparate voices and all the disparate concerns and uh, somehow melding them together uh, into things that everyone can at least give grudging consent to. Huh. Uh, and that is no small thing, no. right? To say, Again and again and again, we are going to attest that our community is stronger than our divisions and that through these structures, uh, we can come to compromises. Hmm. Yeah, the structures give us a story to tell, a story that we all have in common. They do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. Um, So, and, and, you know, we were talking about the spiritual reading of this, you know, it's, it's, probably pretty odd to say that bureaucracy has a spirituality or a spiritual value and gift. Um, but I think in a certain way it really does. Um, it's this willingness to, to work collaboratively, um, to share authority, uh, you know, and, and to divide up the labor. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm still taken by how you described earlier, the idea that the, priesthood can go all the way back to the apostles, uh, Mm -hmm. right? What that means is every Episcopalian can tell a story about the bureaucracy of the church that links them to the apostles. Yes, that's, (laughs) that is really very true. Right, right. Uh, right. That is in some way, the ligaments of our history is that very bureaucracy that, that, uh, structure that continued throughout yeah. time. Wow. That, what a weird thought. <laughs> um, yeah. The holy bureaucracy of the church. Yeah. Uh, do, does Judaism have a similar holy bureaucracy? Uh, you know, certainly we tell a story about our institutional structures that connect us all. Uh, I don't, you know, we can't link it back. I'm still, I'm really taken by this 2000 year old tradition here, um, that you have. Um, yeah. Can we tell a similar story about the bureaucracy of the DMV is my other question here. Um, is is there something that binds us all together as Americans in a spiritual sense by waiting in that line? Um, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, or even, yeah, you know, even more radically, say, like the IRS, you know, I mean, can we think of paying our taxes as 
a way of saying to other people, you belong to my community and therefore I support our mutual work. Yeah. You know, and I wonder, and maybe we're going too far on this, but I, I wonder when we think about um, some of the issues facing the United States today and the sense of division that we have and the lack of a shared narrative and a shared story, I wonder how much of that is about uh, the demonization of American government and bureaucracy by some parts of the sort of political infrastructure and how that eliminates a sense of shared um, investment and past and future that a bureaucracy often provides. Yeah. I, I think might have does. jumped the shark there. I'm not sure. No, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, we're obviously showing our hand as American liberals, but, um, but yeah, I think the demonization of the state, uh, means that, you know, it can only be countered by people upholding the, the spiritual good of the state, right? Like, what is the spiritual good that it does us um, and does the world? And sometimes we do it in a very clunky fashion. Uh, you know, like I remember Obama saying, you know, you didn't build this to like somebody who had built oh, their yeah. small business yeah, yeah, and then yeah, being yeah. angry about it, you know? I mean, what he meant to say was your your welfare, your success depends in some part upon the labor of others, and a and an honest and generous person will acknowledge that fact. Um, but he said it in a in a fairly poor way. Um, so, what you know? How do we claim the spirituality of our systems, um, which sometimes means even making the radical claim that they do have a spirituality? All right, brother. Uh, so we've come to the end of the chapter. Uh, so I will tell you, dear listeners, that Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and rabbi explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness uh, is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, where, where can people uh, find you? I have no endorsement today. Okay. Endorsementless. Daniel Bogart. Okay, but you can always book Daniel if you would like to for an adult forum at your church. Uh, he will pretty much go anywhere, and the reviews are always uh, rave. We would love to come out wherever. So. Yep. All right, dear listeners, uh, thank you, and we will talk to you next week.